Well, amen, church family. I am here, but I'm going to take my water jug up with me today because my throat is nasty with what allergies have blown through. See, people are worried. No one's sitting in the front, so (laughs) don't worry. I'm not contagious. However, if I say something or say a word that you go, Pastor, I don't think that's a word. What what did he just say? Uh, That would be because I don't think I've had more than three consecutive hours of sleep all week. Uh, so uh, it's been a wild week at our house. And then I realize I probably need to tell you, especially if you're a guest, not to be worried if at some point I'm walking and I look like I'm starting to like walk and bounce. I have realized that we're now at the point of putting baby to sleep where I've caught myself at the office and out and about walking and doing kind of the baby fall asleep bounce. So nothing's wrong. I promise I'm not weird. I just, it's been a long, tiresome week and you know, you can kind of half put yourself to sleep, bouncing your baby to sleep. So church family, it is Christmas season. And the reality is the story of Christmas, and not just the story of Christmas, but our story starts a long time ago and in a garden far away. Uh, When you go to Scripture, you discover that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, There was nothing. God was the only being in all existence. He exists outside of what we know as existence, and in an instant, by a word, he created both that which is seen and unseen. He spent six days perfecting his visible creation, which you and I know is this universe, and the pinnacle of all his creation, both this universe, which is seen, and the spiritual universe, which is unseen. The pinnacle of all his creation was his final creation. It was you and me. It was human beings made exclusively alone in his image. And, and in the earth, in this, uh, the earth as it was fresh, he planted a garden called Eden. And in this garden, Adam and Eve, the first humans, they walked with God. They, they, they saw God's grand design and God charged them to, to see what they, what they saw and experience with God in Eden and they were to go and be fruitful, to multiply, to fill this blank canvas of a world with a righteous, holy culture of the Lord. But a problem happens. And God blessed them with this garden, this entire universe to populate, to create, to to steward. And one of God's created spirit beings approached Adam and Eve one day in that garden and began to twist God's Word and create and sow seeds of doubt in From those seeds of doubt, Adam and Eve chose to violate God's Word, God's command, not just God's Word and command, but God's very character, and sin entered the picture. The relationship between human beings and God, broken. The relationship with human beings to themselves, broken. The relationship between human beings, broken. The relationship from human beings to creation, broken. All of creation, broken by sin, and now in bondage to sin's curse, death. And in the immediate fallout of Genesis 3, as God has addressed Adam, He's addressed Eve, and He addresses that fallen spiritual being labeled there in Genesis as the serpent, and He makes this promise. It says, the seed of the woman, you will bruise His heel, but He will crush your head. 
And then this promise of the conquering Savior who would defeat this enemy and somehow bring about restoration, the story of what you and I know as history really begins. And that's what we're going to see today. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're going we're to move forward a little bit more into the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Revelation 12 today and then, and then uh, not next week. Next week's the Christmas concert. The following week we are going to, to, to uh, close out here on Sunday mornings the end of Revelation. We're going to look at eternity and understand what it means for you and I and, and I'm excited about, about doing that. But first we come to Revelation chapter 12. Now, in between, uh, last, last time I preached Revelation 7 and 12, we've seen the end of the scroll judgments, the end of the, the trumpet judgments. If you're curious about those, you can uh, go back and listen to the Wednesday night Bible study. We've walked through those there, but we make it through there, and we make it through uh, John seeing the, the two witnesses, and then we arrive at this point, Revelation 12, verse 1. John seeing, he says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign in heaven appeared. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a, a male child, who is to rule or shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And then there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, for there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. John, all of a sudden, in the midst of Revelation, he is going to see a sign in heaven. He's going to have a vision that is going to encompass things past, things present, and things future. He's going to, to see the fulfillment of God's Word to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And, and here's what he sees. It says at first he, he sees in the heavens a, a woman, and he describes this woman. Now, if you, if you dig in the weeds in, in, in church history, there, there are various ways people have sought to understand the woman. Out of the Catholic Church, they see the woman as Mary. The challenge with that is when you look at the total information about this woman, it, it doesn't fully fit with Mary. Uh, there are some who would say that, that this woman represents the church. Uh, the challenge with that in verses 1 through 6 is that uh, if this woman is the church, it means the church gave birth to the Messiah, and we know from Scripture it's the other way. The Messiah gave birth to the church. 
No, in fact, it's not as complicated as it may seem. Just listen back to the description. The woman is clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet, and she has a crown of 12 stars. Well, that description has been in Scripture before. If you rewind all the way back to the other side of Scripture, Genesis 37, Joseph is telling his father and mother and and brothers his dream. And in the dream, he describes his father and mother and brothers as the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, the emphasis being He's the twelfth star. That language describes the offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. The woman here is is a picture of the Jewish people. It says she was pregnant with child and cried out. Uh, She was in the midst of intense labor pains. This, This only furthers the illustration because it's from the chosen people of God through Abraham. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, says, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and from from the nation that comes from you, the entire world will be blessed. Be blessed with the Messiah who brings salvation to the world. The woman labors and groans, and if you know the story of Scripture, you you understand the process of the Messiah's coming through the people of Israel. It's, It's painful. There's slavery in Egypt trial in the wilderness. There's the battles of the conquest. There's the time of judgment under the judges when wickedness rules. There was the pains of the kings. There is the wickedness of idolatry. There was the discipline of exile, and even once they returned from exile, there was the constant challenge of occupation even in their own homeland. There were many birth pains and the life of the people of Israel leading up to the Messiah's birth, all from nearly their beginning. The woman, the people of Israel, pregnant with a child, God's promised Messiah. But he sees another sign. He sees the other sign. He describes a great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and on the head seven diadems whose tail sweeps away a third of the stars. This imagery should not surprise us. We looked at it. We've seen it in Daniel when we walked through Daniel earlier this year. It's similar imagery to Daniel. It'll be similar imagery to the the dragon's beast, which comes in Revelation 13. We'll look at that on Wednesday. But it describes this dragon. The dragon's red, a color of danger, a color that represents murderous, bloodthirsty intent. This dragon is dangerous and murderous. Not only that, the dragon, the the seven heads, the ten horns, horns representing power, the, the seven diadems representing authority, this dragon is fierce, intimidating because it poses a, a kind of power and authority. Not only that, but this dragon opposes the very people of God. You say, well, how so? It says his tail swipes away a third of the stars of heaven. And what does that mean? Well, so it could mean it, Satan's fall, taking a third of the angels. We know Satan did fall from other parts of Scripture. We know he deceived and brought with him other angels in rebellion. We call them demons. But if you trace back what this passage is built on to Daniel, and Daniel, stars are a reference uniquely in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 to the righteous people of God. Already in this passage, the 12 stars on the crown refer to the people of Israel. 
When it says that the dragon swipes away, the language is literally that he forcibly removes a third of the stars of heaven and he violently casts them out and throws them to the ground. That is language of persecution and destruction. You see, this dragon is set against the people of God. Not only that, it says the dragon waits for the child to be born, the woman's child, the one whom the Old Testament calls the Messiah. This, this dragon is opposed to the Messiah. And we see this all throughout Scripture. There's an implication that the dragon encourages Cain to kill Abel. There's Pharaoh, ironically, who is called in the Exodus narrative a dragon who kills all the Hebrew male babies. There's Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, not the Messianic tribe, seeking to kill David, the anointed one from the Messianic tribe. There's Queen Athaliah who seeks to kill all of the male heirs of Judah. There's Haman from Persia who seeks to eradicate the Jews even in the life of Jesus. Herod slaughters the Jewish male babies. Satan tempts Jesus to give up his birthright, and when Judas decides to betray him, it says the spirit of Satan enters into Judas to betray. This dragon is opposed not just to God's people, but to God's Messiah. But there's more to who this dragon is. In fact, it spells it out clearly. Look back with me at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old. This dragon is not somebody new. It's the very person, the very being who was in the garden tempting Adam and Eve, who is called the devil and Satan. This dragon is not just some powerful supernatural being. This dragon is the one you and I know as Satan. And look how it describes Satan, church family. It describes Satan as a slandering accuser of God's people. He is the devil, which means the one who slanders. He is Satan. Satan's name literally, the, the, the word Satan means adversary, enemy. It says further down, we'll see in a moment, that he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night, meaning he is in a constant state of approval, accusing, accusal. See, this dragon is Satan, and Satan is not just what we know. Speaking of Satan, Jesus says his heart was set on murder from the beginning, red. There is a power and might and authority that Satan wields, the prince of the power of the air that rules over the culture and the, the peoples of this world. We see Satan's opposition to the people of God and even to the Messiah himself. We see here that he's the slanderous accuser, meaning this. We know of Old Testament examples, Job, Zechariah, where, where Satan seems to stand in heaven, and, and what he does is he goes before the throne of God and he says, this person, they're guilty. They deserve your punishment. He accuses, condemns, slanders them before God. And in the Old Testament, there's a nugget of truth to that. You and I have fallen short. We do deserve the just wrath of God. You say, here's an enemy, Satan, who will seek says in a moment, we'll see that he's, he's a deceiver. He will deceive and manipulate and twist people into sin. And once he gets them into sin, now he can accuse them. Look at how bad they are. They deserve your judgment. He accuses and slanders the people of God. He wants us to sin so he can then accuse. He's a liar and deceiver of the nations. It says he deceives the whole world. By the way, deceives there, it's a present active verb, meaning this. There is never a time when Satan is not deceiving. He's always deceiving. 
Present tense, he's presently deceiving, he's always deceiving. Not only that, active voice means not only is there never a time Satan's not deceiving, but he's deceiving because he wants to. It's who he is. It's what he desires, and he, he deceives all the world. He is a deceiver. He promises life, but brings only death. He cheers you to sin and then turns and condemns you. He claims absolute authority, crowns, but is limited in what he has. He appears almighty and powerful, horns and heads, but is in fact limited. He may be fierce, he may be murderous, he may be frightening and intimidating to us as the red dragon. He's a slandering accuser, he is a deceiver, but understand, church family, the passage says this dragon is limited. It says this, look back, look back with me, it says, and the war raged in heaven, the dragon and his angels waged war, and it says this, they were not strong enough. They were not strong enough, meaning they were insufficient to meet the need. And the way it's spelled out there is it's not that day they weren't strong enough. The implication is pick any day, any time from all of eternity, and they would always not be strong enough. There is never a day when Satan does not lose. That's what it's saying. He may possess a power, he may possess an authority, he may be fierce looking to you and me in this moment now, but he is limited before God. It is not enough. He who hurled, he who persecutes the people of God, who hurls the star out of heaven and finds himself hurled, thrown down out of heaven. His destiny is not in heaven. His destiny, we'll see in the weeks to come, is in the abyss, in the pit, in the fire forever. Not only is he limited, but he is defeated. Now, I want to be clear real quick, church family, before we move further on. Notice the war in heaven, Satan and his angels are fighting with Michael and his angels. Michael, whose name means who is like God, is taking on the one who said in his heart, I will be like God. Now, I want you to notice something. Satan isn't fighting God. Now, here's what I mean by that. It is common in our culture to think of Satan as God's arch nemesis. Satan is not God's arch nemesis, church family, because to be God's arch nemesis, you would have to be his equal. And Satan is not on equal footing with God. There is no God who is on equal footing with our God. Amen. Satan is a prideful, created being who, who decided he could try to overthrow God in absolute arrogance, which is why you find him here fighting with Michael and his angels, because God is actually up to something far bigger than just crushing an annoying little pimple. How does the enemy lose? Why is his power limited? Why does he go down? Look what it says. Back with me, verse 5. He stood ready to devour the child, and she gave birth to a son. Now, catch that picture for a moment. You know, as a lady gives birth, she, she, she's in a, in a dangerous position. She can't fend for herself. She can't defend the child. As the child. And there is a dragon waiting at any moment 
The situation is dire. That child's life is in danger, except this child isn't like any other child. And in the irony of Scripture, it doesn't give a lot of intense language. It just simply says the dragon was ready to consume the child, but the child was born. And the dragon didn't touch the child. The the child was born, a male child who's to rule the nations. Now we know the identity of this child, church family. This child fulfills Psalm 2 as the one who will rule the nations with with iron. This child was born to to a woman, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, who would crush the head of the serpent. This child is none other than the Messiah, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus is born in the fullness of time to the Virgin Mary, the Jew of Jews, an heir of the tribe of Judah in the line of David. He is born. He is born, and it says he was caught up to God. Now, understand that simple phrase is describing Jesus came, he was born. He lived a perfect life, fully human as you and I, having always been fully God. He lived that perfect life that you and I have fallen short of. He died that perfect atoning sacrificial death that you and I deserve to die, but He died in our place and and shed His blood on our behalf to free us, to, to buy us out of sin's curse and death, to wash us clean white as snow, to restore us to God. He rose from the grave because death cannot hold him down. And he ascended into heaven, caught up into heaven, where we know from the fullness of Scripture that he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God, our great high priest who intercedes for us forever. No longer does an accuser stand before the throne of God, but rather a great high priest who both who represents us and stands on our behalf, who sits down at the right hand of God, the place of honor and power, because his work is finished. Salvation is secured for those who place faith in Christ. Notice God's focus isn't on crushing Satan. Satan's a created being. God can crush him with a thought. God's purpose is on something bigger, the true problem, you and I's sin and our need to be reconciled back to God. And the implication is that somewhere as Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, this passage is not concerned with the the precise moment But somewhere in that time, Jesus ascended and this war broke out in heaven and Satan, who we know in the Old Testament, would stand and accuse the people of God before the throne of God. He is hurled out, it says, forevermore. He's not there. His accusations have fallen short, which which, which brings this cry of praise. Look with me, verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. By the way, those things have come, some in full, some in part, with the rest coming. God's salvation has been revealed. The power of God for salvation is the gospel of Christ, Romans 1. Jesus says, behold, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus sent us out to make disciples. Why? Saying, all authority had been given to Him. The salvation and power and kingdom and authority of our God and His Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them day and night before our God and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. 
and they did not love their life even when faced with death, all of a sudden says, this cry of heaven echoes out because the work of Christ has been finished, salvation has come. That which was a mystery through the Old Testament has now been made clear in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation has come, the day of salvation is here and they, they cry out the results of salvation, Satan has been hurled out. And it says they, those brethren who Satan once stood and condemned. God, they're, they're, they're dirty before you. They've fallen short of you, which is true, we all have. It says those brethren have now overcome Satan. He, they've overcome those accusations, how? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ to do what you and I cannot, will not, and are unable to do for ourselves, who shed His blood to pay the payment that our sin rightfully owes, who shed His blood to drop that payment to buy us out of sin and death's shackles, who shed that blood that when it washes us, it washes us and regenerates us, making us clean, making us brand new. It, it brings us into the kingdom, not just the kingdom of God, but the family of God where we are adopted as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ. We overcome the enemy on the objective basis of who Jesus is and what He's done, the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Well, what does that mean? It means here's the objective reality of what Jesus has done, but that objective reality has to enter into our life in a per through a personal response of faith. Listen, every human being in this world, Jesus has shed His blood on their behalf, but not every human being in this world has overcome the enemy. Only those who in a response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they are in fact sinners, deserving of divine, righteous, just wrath, but that Jesus paid their price, that He desires to be their Savior because He is rightfully their Creator and King and He wants to bring them into the family of God as sons or daughters. When, when that individual in response to that conviction says, Jesus, on the basis of who you are alone, on what you've done alone, I am trusting you to save me because I am a sinner and I need to be restored. When they respond in faith, when you or I respond in faith, to that offer, it says, God in His grace saves us. Not only that, the word of their testimony, there has to be a personal response to their faith. If anyone would believe in their heart and that, that Jesus is Lord and confess, or believe in their heart that God raised Him for the dead and confess with His mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved, Romans 10. Not only that, but for those of us who have responded to the Lord in faith, there, there, there's, there's this reality. We don't respond to the Lord and are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith, and we now live out that salvation by grace through faith. We continue to overcome now the accusations of Satan that, that whisper that con condemnation into our ears. You lousy child of God, you know how patient God has been with you over your sin, and you just got impatient and lost it with your loved one. God doesn't want to hear your prayer. He doesn't want anything to do with you. You, I, you, 
You who God washed clean from so much impurity and immorality, and you just turn back to those images? Don't you dare pray and ask God for forgiveness. He, he's so disappointed in you. Satan can't accuse us before God, but he can absolutely accuse us to our face. You want to know how you overcome that? By going, you're right, Satan, what I did was wrong. I shouldn't have lost it with my loved one. I shouldn't have turned back. I'm wrong. But the blood of the Lamb reminds me that the same God whom loved me so much that while I was still an enemy sent his one and only unique beloved son to die for me is the same God who still loves me in the same exact fervency as his son or daughter. And I don't run before his throne on the basis of my works. I will run before his throne having messed up on the basis of Jesus who is perfect, who guarantees me access to the Father. I will run in like a child and say, Father, Papa, Daddy, I I have, I messed up and I'm sorry. And I am coming with bold and confidence for grace and mercy in time of need. We still overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony by appropriating through faith the objective work of Christ on our behalf. You as a Christian feel like you can't come boldly before God. Well, somewhere you probably have an issue. Do you really believe the blood is good? Say, I, I, as a Christian, I'm struggling with temptation. Do you know that the blood says there is no temptation that has come upon you that is unique and uncommon to any other human being? And that because of Christ, in Christ, there is a way out from every temptation that you may be able to endure, meaning this, because of the blood of Jesus has separated and bought you out of the power of sin, I as a believer can hear temptation's siren call over and over and over, and by the blood of Jesus, through the word of my testimony, I can say no. That's what he's saying. This cry, of, this cry of praise goes out throughout heaven. They have overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. And when we respond in faith to the objective reality of his shed blood in salvation, being made from dead to live, when we as those who've been adopted by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, when we by faith walk with Jesus on the basis of who he is, not who we are, on the basis of what he's done on our behalf, not what we do for him. When we do that, when we are anchored in, in correctly understanding what it means that he's shed his blood and, and walking by faith in that, when we anchor there, look what it produces. And they did not love their life when faced even with death. It produces a life of loving adoring worship that does not value me and my physical security as more important than faithfulness and love for Jesus. Put it a different way. You want to know the secret to growing as a true, uh, living a life of worship for Jesus 
It means anchoring yourself in the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. It means walking by faith in the objective reality of who Jesus is. It means being consumed in our hearts and our minds, the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart with who He is and what He's done. And, and, and when, our, when our aim is that, what does it produce? What is the Holy Spirit who seals us and fills us? What does He produce? He produces a love for Jesus that sees Jesus as more important than the safety of even my own life. Which means if my worship is low, could it be because doctrinally I don't understand what Jesus has done? Could it be that somewhere I'm not really walking by faith in Christ but walking by faith in me? Likely, yes. Now, this is key to understand this, church family, because look what the rest of the passage tells us. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, filled with rage, knowing that he has a short time, meaning knowing that there is a set limit to his time that he will not go past. He has an expiration date, and he knows he won't get past it. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, so she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so he might cause her to be swept away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went off to make war with the rest of her children, those who are actively keeping the commandments of God and who are actively holding to the testimony of Jesus. See, here's what it says. Now, on one hand, it says some things that we can try to figure out and hone in on, is, is this now, is the woman still Israel, is the three and a half years, is that the last half of the tribulation, is, is the woman Israel and the church? There's some real questions there, and I'm not trying to ignore them this morning. It's just they, they take us away from even in that what the main point is. And by the way, go look on Wednesday nights, I promise, we, we answer those questions there. Notice what it says. It says, Satan, after Jesus ascends, he's kicked out of heaven, and where is he now? Here, filled with rage because he knows he's lost. And now he directs all of the fullness of his rage at assaulting the people of God. It describes his rage as great wrath, terrible anger. It describes his assault on the woman as a flood. Reference in Scripture can be an army spreading out to conquer a nation. That may very well be applicable in the final half of the tribulation and what Satan does through his antichrist. Uh, a flood can also mean in Scripture the persecution of God's people from, from their enemies. David describes Saul's pursuit of his life as a flood. It can also uh, find images in Scripture for a flood of words, meaning Satan's use of manipulation and deception and temptation to twist the words of God and seduce the people of God into a place of destruction. By the way, Satan loves to persecute God's people, but Satan loves even more to twist God's people and, and get them to fall on their own dime. 
And, did you, and, and if you go back and remember with me for a second in the letters to the seven churches, every one of those churches that was facing overt persecution or was struggling with the temptation to compromise doctrinally or morally, in every one of those letters where that issue, those two issues are mentioned, it also says there is a synagogue of Satan. There are people who are walking in the deep things of Satan, where they are residing in a place where there is a throne of Satan. You see, church family, you and I live in the moment now when Satan has set his sights at the absolute destruction of God's people. Now, if you're in Christ, he can't destroy you eternally and keep you out from God's presence. But what he can do is he can use persecution to scare and terrify you, to keep your mouth shut, to keep us from being the ambassadors we're called to be for Christ, to chain the gospel to fearful hearts, and to keep the world from hearing. He can use persecution and, and try to kill off the church, the irony being because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, it's the blood of the martyrs that's always been the seed of the church, which is why you can't kill the church. We also understand there's another way Satan seeks to destroy the church. It's to deceive with false doctrine, with false morality. It is to deceive, to twist, to turn. And it's not because there's a better way. It's not because he just wants people to party with him and do it his way. It is because he wants absolute destruction for the people of God. And if you're a child of God, what that destruction means is not eternal hell. If you're truly, if you are truly saved, God will keep you through the end. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit if you've truly been saved by grace through faith. But God intends for you to know the fullness of His salvation in this world, even in the midst of hardship. And when you and I walk in the enemy's lies, we will never know the fullness of, his, of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, selflessness, self-control that the Holy Spirit would produce in us. He, he can rob us of experiencing the comfort of God that comforts us in all of our affliction. He can rob us from knowing joy which is beyond description as God refines our faith through trial. You see, church family, we live in a real world where there is a real enemy who seeks the destruction of God's image bearers, humanity, and specifically seeks the destruction of God's people through deception and persecution. But church family, today what you need to hear is we as God's people can live with no fear of the dragon. Our victory is assured by the blood of the Lamb which we experience in the word of our testimony. And so what we must do today is we must know, do you know the washing and regeneration of the blood of the Lamb? Listen, praying a prayer, there's, nothing, there's no magic prayer that saves. I can manipulate a room of teenagers into praying anything. And that doesn't mean anything other than I'm manipulative. True faith is, yeah, it'll be expressed through a prayer. Maybe it's a prayer that was repeated after someone, maybe not. But my point is today, do, do you know the actual washing and regeneration of the blood of the Lamb in salvation? It only comes by God's grace. You can't earn it. 
There's no amount of works that bring it. It's not God's grace plus baptism, God's grace plus Lord's Supper, God's grace plus Lord's attendance, God's grace plus whatever. It's just God's grace through the blood of the Lamb. Christ alone, grace alone. It's received through a response of faith alone. Or in response to the Holy Spirit's conviction, I I rest the full weight of my being on Jesus. Which means when I get to heaven and he says, why should I let you in? The answer ought to be, Lord, because you said you would save me based on what you did and I've been trusting you to do it. Because I know I, I don't measure up. Do you know the washing and regeneration of the blood and salvation, church family? If you know the washing and regeneration of of the blood of salvation, are you abiding by faith in the victory of Jesus' blood? When tempted, are we just caving to the temptation or are we looking up above where Jesus is seated at the right hand and realizing by the blood of Christ, I can say no. When we're tempted to despair, when we turn on the news and see the horrid state of the world, do we look up and see the shed blood of the lamb and realize the war's been won? And because the war has been won, I can make choices in my life that are motivated by Jesus sitting on a throne rather than by what fear the news anchor is telling me I should fear today. That's what it means when we say, oh, Jesus is on his throne. Well, what does that mean? Jesus on his throne doesn't mean you're not going to have sorrow in this world, church family. What it means is I can be driven not by fear or sorrow, but driven by the steadfast character of God at his word. Because the victory's been won. Do I look to the blood of the lamb? And church family, as we do this, what it produces is a worship of Jesus that says, my own life is not worth more than Jesus. Does my life look like that today? Or does the Holy Spirit convict and say, no, my life looks like Jesus is worth up to this point, and then I'm more worth than Jesus? And if that's the case, we need to go back and look. Do I really understand the blood of the Lamb? Am I really abiding by faith? Because when I understand the blood of the Lamb and abide by faith, the word of my testimony in it, what it produces is those who do not love and value our lives more than Jesus himself. Oh, it's beautiful, church family. It's beautiful. You see, in a few days, there will inevitably be uh, Pearl Harbor tributes. You may think, well, Pearl Harbor and Christmas, what do they have in common other than they're both in December? Well, let me tell you what both have in common. Pearl Harbor was a declaration of war. And according to this passage, the promise of war that came in Genesis 3.15, oh, Satan, you may think you've won. But there's coming the seed of the woman. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll absolutely obliterate and crush your head into powder. 2,000 years ago, when a baby boy was born in Bethlehem to a young virgin girl of the people of Israel, and the angels sang their praise, war was declared. But here's great news, church family. 2,000 years ago when that same baby was a man shedding his precious blood on that cross for us. And he uttered those words, it is finished. The war was over.
And today we can overcome the enemy that is very real and present in this world by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Oh, may we be people, church family, who love him more than our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, you're worthy, and we look to you. Lord, you don't save us and then we grow, grow on to new, deeper things. Lord, you save us and then we grow deeper and deeper in the reality of your gospel. We go deeper and deeper in the reality of your grace. Lord, it is by grace through faith that you saved us. And when Paul was facing something that was keeping him and his eyes from being his very best for you, you looked at him and said, Paul, I'm not going to take the thorn away. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Lord, in the reality, you can say things like that to us, and, and they are true in the application and experience of life is, Lord, because you shed your blood. And those of us who have been washed and renewed through the cleansing of your blood, Lord, we can know your victory. So Jesus, I don't know where everybody's at in this room and online this morning. You do, and Holy Spirit, I have prayed and I am trusting that you're working on each heart. Whoever needs to respond for salvation today, may they not tarry. Whoever needs a brother and sister in God in, in the room, Lord, who, who needs to confess sin, may they do it. If there's someone they need to reconcile with, may they do that. Lord, whatever we need to, to confess to you, whatever we need to just praise and worship you with, may we respond to you, Lord. It's in your name that I pray.